Section 1 of The Cruel Painter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ned Troxell. The Cruel Painter by George MacDonald. Section 1. Among the young men assembled at the University of Prague in the year 1590 was one called Karl von Wolkenlicht. A somewhat careless student, he yet held a fair position in the estimation of both professors and men, because he could hardly look at a proposition without understanding it. Where such proposition, however, had to do with anything relating to the deeper insights of the nature, he was quite content that for him it should remain a proposition, which, however, he laid up in one of his mental cabinets, and was ready to reproduce at a moment's notice. This mental agility was more than matched by the corresponding corporeal excellence, and both aided in producing results in which his remarkable strength was equally apparent. In all games depending upon the combination of muscle and skill, he had scarce rivalry enough to keep him in practice. His strength, however, was embodied in such a softness of muscular outline, such a rare Greek-like style of beauty, and associated with such a gentleness of manner and behavior, that partly from the truth of the resemblance, partly from the absurdity of the contrast, he was known throughout the university by the diminutive of the feminine form of his name, and was always called Lotchen. "'I say, Lotchen,' said one of his fellow-students, called Richter, across the table in a wine-cellar they were in the habit of frequenting. "'Do you know, Heinrich Hullenrachen here says that he saw this morning, with mortal eyes, whom do you think? Lilith.' "'Adam's first wife?' asked Lutchen, with an attempt at carelessness, while his face flushed like a maiden's. "'None of your chaff,' said Richter. "'Your face is honester than your tongue, and confesses what you cannot deny, that you would give your chance of salvation, a small one to be sure, but all that you've got, for one peep at Lilith, wouldn't you now, Lutchen?' "'Go to the devil,' was all Lutchen's answer to his tormentor but he turned to Heinrich, to whom the students had given the surname above mentioned because of the enormous width of his jaws, and said with eagerness and envy, disguising them as well as he could under the appearance of curiosity, "'You don't mean it, Heinrich. You have been taking the beggar in. Confess now.' "'Not I. I saw her with my two eyes.' "'Notwithstanding the different planes of their orbits,' suggested Richter." "'Yes, notwithstanding the fact that I can get a parallax to any of the fixed stars in a moment with only the breadth of my nose for the base,' answered Heinrich, responding at once to the fun, and careless of the personal defect insinuated. "'She was near enough for even me to see her perfectly.' "'When? Where? How?' asked Lutchen. Two hours ago, in the churchyard of St. Stephen's, by a lucky chance,' "'Any more little questions, my child?' answered Hullenrachen. "'What could have taken her there, who is seen nowhere?' said Richter. "'She was seated on a grave. After she left I went to the place, but it was a new-made grave. There was no stone up. I asked the sexton about her. He said he supposed she was the daughter of the woman buried there last Thursday week. I knew it was Lilith.' "'Her mother dead,' said Lutchen, musingly. "'Then he thought with himself, "'She will be going there again, then.' 
but he took care that this ghost thought should wander unembodied. But how did you know her, Heinrich? You never saw her before. How do you come to be head and ears in love with her, Lutchen, and you haven't seen her at all? interposed Richter. Will you or will you not go to the devil? rejoined Lutchen with a comic crescendo, to which the other replied with a laugh. No one could miss knowing her, said Heinrich. Is she so very like, then? It is always herself, her very self. A fresh flask of wine, turning out to be not up to the mark, brought the current of the conversation against itself, not much to the dissatisfaction of Lutchen, who had already resolved to be in the churchyard of St. Stephen's at sundown the following day, in the hope that he, too, might be favored with a vision of Lilith. This resolution he carried out, seated in a porch of the church, not knowing in what direction to look for the apparition he hoped to see, and desirous as well of not seeming to be on the watch for one, he was gazing at the fallen rose-leaves of the sunset, withering away upon the sky, when glancing aside by an involuntary movement, he saw a woman seated upon a new-made grave, not many yards from where he sat, with her face buried in her hands, and apparently weeping bitterly. Carl was in the shadow of the porch and could see her perfectly, without much danger of being discovered by her, so he sat and watched her. She raised her head for a moment, and the rose flush of the west fell over it, shining on the tears with which it was wet, and giving the whole a bloom which did not belong to it, for it was always pale, and now pale as death. It was indeed the face of Lilith, the most celebrated beauty of Prague. Again she buried her face in her hands, and Carl sat with a strange feeling of helplessness, which grew as he sat, and the longing to help her whom he could not help drew his heart towards her with a trembling reverence which was quite new to him. She wept on. The western roses withered slowly away, and the clouds blended with the sky, and the stars gathered like drops of glory sinking through the vault of night and the trees about the churchyard grew black, and Lilith almost vanished in the wide darkness. At length she lifted her head, and seeing the night around her, gave a little broken cry of dismay. The minutes had swept over her head, not through her mind, and she did not know that the dark had come. Hearing her cry, Carl rose and approached her. She heard his footsteps, and started to her feet. Carl spoke. Do not be frightened, he said. Let me see you home. I will walk behind you. Who are you? she rejoined. Karl Volkenlicht. I have heard of you. Thank you. I can go home alone. Yet, as if in a half-dreamy, half-unconscious mood, she accepted his offered hand to lead her through the graves, and allowed him to walk beside her till, reaching the corner of a narrow street, she suddenly bade him good-night and vanished. He thought it better not to follow her, so he returned her good-night and went home. How to see her again was his first thought the next day, as, in fact, how to see her at all had been his first thought for many days. She went nowhere that ever he heard of. She knew nobody that he knew. She was never seen at church or at market, never seen in the street. Her home had a dreary, desolate aspect. It looked as if no one ever went out or in, 
it was like a place on which decay had fallen because there was no indwelling spirit the mud of years was baked upon its door and no faces looked out of its dusty windows how then could she be the most celebrated beauty of prague how then was it that heinrich hollenrachen knew her the moment he saw her above all how was it that karl wolkenlicht had in fact fallen in love with her before he ever saw her it was thus her father was a painter belonging thus to the public it had taken the liberty of renaming him every one called him teufelsburst or devil's brush it was a name with which to judge from the nature of his representations he could hardly fail to be pleased for not as a nightmare dream which may alternate with the loveliest visions but as his ordinary everyday work he delighted to represent human suffering not an aspect of human woe or torture as expressed in countenance or limb came before his willing imagination but he bore it straightway to his easel in the moments that precede sleep when the black space before the eyes of the poet teems with lovely faces or dawns into a spirit landscape face after face of suffering in all varieties of expression would crowd as if compelled by the accompanying fiends to present themselves in awful levy before the inner eye of the expectant master then he would rise light his lamp and with rapid hand make notes of his visions recording with swift successive sweeps of his pencil every individual face which had rejoiced his evil fancy then he would return to his couch and well satisfied fall asleep to dream yet further embodiments of human ill what wrong could man or mankind have done him to be thus fearfully pursued by the vengeance of the artist's hate another characteristic of the faces and form which he drew was that they were all beautiful in the original idea the lines of each face however distorted by pain would have been in rest absolutely beautiful and the whole of the execution bore witness to the fact that upon this original beauty the painter had directed the artillery of anguish to bring down the sky-soaring heights of its divinity to the level of a hated existence to do this he worked in perfect accordance with artistic law falsifying no line of the original forms it was the suffering rather than his pencil that wrought the change the latter was the willing instrument to record what the imagination conceived with a cruelty composed enough to be correct to enhance the beauty he had thus distorted and so to enhance yet further the suffering that produced the distortion he would often represent attendant demons whom he made as ugly as his imagination could compass avoiding however all grotesqueness beyond what was sufficient to indicate that they were demons and not men their ugliness rose from hate envy and all evil passions amongst which he especially delighted to represent a gloating exultation over human distress and often in the midst of his clouds of demon faces would some one who knew him recognize the painter's own likeness such as the mirror might have presented it to him when he was busiest over the incarnation of some exquisite torture but apparently with the wish to avoid being supposed to choose such representations for their own sakes 
he always found a story, often in the histories of the church, whose name he gave to the painting, and which he pretended to have inspired the pictorial conception. No one, however, who looked upon his suffering martyrs, could suppose for a moment that he honored their martyrdom. They were but the vehicles for his hate of humanity. He was the torturer, and not Diocletian or Nero. But, stranger yet to tell, there was no picture, whatever its subject, into which he did not introduce one form of placid and harmonious loveliness. In this, however, his fierceness was only more fully displayed, for in no case did this form manifest any relation either to the actors or the endurers in the picture. Hence its very loveliness became almost hateful to those who beheld it. Not a shade crossed the still sky of that brow, not a ripple disturbed the still sea of that cheek. She did not hate, she did not love the sufferers. The painter would not have her hate, for that would be to the injury of her loveliness, would not have her love, for he hated. Sometimes she floated above as a still, unobservant angel, her gaze turned upward, dreaming along, careless as a white summer cloud across the blue. If she looked down on the scene below, it was only that the beholder might see that she saw and did not care, that not a feather of her outspread pinions would quiver at the sight. Sometimes she would stand in the crowd, as if she had been copied there from another picture, and had nothing to do with this one, nor any right to be in it at all. Or when the red blood was trickling drop by drop from the crushed limb, she might be seen standing nearest, smiling over a primrose, or the bloom on a peach. Some had said that she was the painter's wife, that she had been false to him, that he had killed her, and, finding that was no sufficing revenge, thus half in love, and half in deepest hate, immortalized his vengeance. But it was now universally understood that it was his daughter, of whose loveliness extravagant reports went abroad, though all said, doubtless reading this from her father's pictures, that she was a beauty without a heart. Strange theories of something else supplying its place were rife among the anatomical students. With the girl in the pictures, the wild imagination of Lopchin, probably in part from her apparently absolute unattainableness and her undisputed heartlessness, had fallen in love, as far as the mere imagination can fall in love. But again, how was he to see her? He haunted the house night after night. Those blue eyes never met his. No step responsive to his came from that door. It seemed to have been so long unopened that it had grown as fixed and hard as the stones that held its bolts in their passive clasp. He dared not watch in the daytime, and with all his watching at night, he never saw father or daughter or domestic cross the threshold. Little he thought that, from a shop window near the door, a pail of blue eyes, like Lilith's, but paler and colder, were watching him, just as a spider watches the fly that is likely, ere long, to fall into his toils. And into those toils Carl soon fell. For her form darkened the page. Her form stood on the threshold of sleep, and when, overcome with watching, he did enter its precincts, 
her form entered with him and walked by his side he must find her or the world might go to the bottomless pit for him but how yes he would be a painter teufelsburst would receive him as a humble apprentice he would grind his colors and teufelsburst would teach him the mysteries of the science which is the handmaiden of art then he might see her and that was all his ambition in the clear morning light of a day in autumn when the leaves were beginning to fall seared from the hand of that death which has his dance in the chapels of nature as well as in the cathedral aisles of men he walked up and knocked at the dingy door the spider painter opened it himself he was a little man meagre and pallid with those faded blue eyes a low nose in three distinct divisions and thin curveless cruel lips he wore no hair on his face but long gray locks long as a woman's were scattered over his shoulders and hung down on his breast when wolkenlicht had explained his errand he smiled a smile in which hypocrisy could not hide the cunning and after many difficulties consented to receive him as a pupil on condition that he would become an inmate of his house wolkenlicht's heart bounded with delight which he tried to hide the second smile of teufelsburst might have shown him that he had ill succeeded the fact that he was not a native of prague but coming from a distant part of the country was entirely his own master in the city rendered this condition perfectly easy to fulfill and that very afternoon he entered the studio of teufelsburst as his scholar and servant it was a great room filled with the appliances and results of art many pictures festooned with cobwebs were hung carelessly on the dirty walls others half finished leaned against them on the floor several in different stages of progress stood upon easels but all spoke the cruel bent of the artist's genius in one corner a lay figure was extended on a couch covered with a pall of black velvet through its folds the form beneath was easily discernible and one hand and forearm protruded from beneath it at right angles to the rest of the frame lottchen could not help shuddering when he saw it although he overcame the feeling in a moment he felt a great repugnance to seating himself with his back towards it as the arrangement of an easel at which teufelsburst wished him to draw rendered necessary he contrived to edge himself round so that when he lifted his eyes he should see the figure and be sure it could not rise without his being aware of it but his master saw and understood his altered position and under some pretense about the light compelled him to resume the position in which he had placed him at first after which he sat watching over the top of his picture the expression of his countenance as he tried to draw reading in it the horrid fancy that the figure under the pall had risen and was stealthily approaching to look over his shoulder but lottchen resisted the feeling and being already no contemptible draughtsman was soon interested enough to forget it and then any moment she might enter now began a system of slow torture for the chance of which the painter had been long on the watch 
especially since he had first seen Carl lingering about the house. His opportunities of seeing physical suffering were nearly enough, even for the diseased necessities of his art. But now he had one in his power, on whom, his own will fettering him, he could try any experiments he pleased for the production of a kind of suffering, in the observation of which he did not consider that he had yet sufficient experience. He would hold the very heart of the youth in his hand, and wring it and torture it to his own content. And lest Carl should be strong enough to prevent those expressions of pain for which he lay on the watch, he would make use of further means, known to himself, and known to few besides. All that day Carl saw nothing of Lilith, but he heard her voice once, and that was enough for one day. The next, she was sitting to her father the greater part of the day, and he could see her as often as he dared glance up from his drawing. She had looked at him when she entered, but had shown no sign of recognition, and all day long she took no further notice of him. He hoped at first that this came of the intelligence of love, but he soon began to doubt it, for he saw that, with the holy shadow of sorrow, all that distinguished the expression of her countenance from that which the painter so constantly reproduced had vanished likewise. It was the very face of the unheeding angel, whom, as often as he lifted his eyes higher than hers, he saw on the wall above her, playing on a psaltery in the smoke of the torment, ascending forever from burning Babylon. The power of the painter had not merely wrought for the representation of the woman of his imagination. It had had scope as well in realizing her. Carl soon began to see that communication, other than of the eyes, was all but hopeless, and to any attempt in that way she seemed altogether indisposed to respond. Nor, if she had wished it, would it have been safe, for as often as he glanced toward her, instead of hers, he met the blue eyes of the painter gleaming upon him like winter lightning. His tones, his gestures, his words seemed kind. His glance and his smile refused to be disguised. The first day he dined alone in the studio, waited upon by an old woman. The next he was admitted to the family table, with Teufelsburst and Lilith. The room offered a strange contrast to the study. As far as handicraft, directed by a sumptuous taste, could construct a house-paradise, this was one, but it seemed rather a paradise of demons, for the walls were covered with Teufelsburst's paintings. During the dinner, Lilith's gaze scarcely met that of Wolkenlicht, and once or twice, when their eyes did meet, her glance was so perfectly unconcerned that Carl wished he might look at her forever without the fear of her looking at him again. She seemed like one whose love had rushed out, glowing with seraphic fire, to be frozen to death in more than wintry cold. She now walked lonely without her love. In the evenings he was expected to continue his drawing by lamplight, and at night he was conducted by Teufelsburst to his chamber. Not once did he allow him to proceed thither alone and not once did he leave him there without locking and bolting the door on the outside. But he felt nothing except the coldness of Lilith. 
Day after day she sat to her father in every variety of costume that could best show the variety of her beauty. How much greater that beauty might be if it ever blossomed into a beauty of soul, Volkenlicht never imagined. For he soon loved her enough to attribute to her all the possibilities of her face as actual possessions of her being. To account for everything that seemed to contradict this perfection, his brain was prolific in inventions, till he was compelled at last to see that she was in the condition of a rosebud, which, on the point of blossoming, had been chilled into a changeless bud by the cold of an untimely frost. For one day, after the father and daughter had become a little more accustomed to his silent presence, a conversation began between them, which went on until he saw that Teufelsburst believed in nothing except his art. How much of his feeling for that could be dignified by the name of belief, seeing its objects were such as they were, might have been questioned. It seemed to Volkenlicht to amount only to this, that amidst a thousand distastes, it was a pleasant thing to reproduce on the canvas the forms he beheld around him, modifying them to express the prevailing feelings of his own mind. A more desolate communication between souls than that which then passed between father and daughter could hardly be imagined. The father spoke of humanity and all its experiences in a tone of the bitterest scorn. He despised men and himself amongst them, and rejoiced to think that the generations rose and vanished, brood after brood, as the crops of corn grew and disappeared. Lilith, who listened to it all unmoved, taking only an intellectual interest in the question, remarked that even the corn had more life than that, for, after its death, it rose again in the new crop. Whether she meant that the corn was therefore superior to man, forgetting that the superior can produce being without losing its own, or only advanced an objection to her father's argument, Volkenlicht could not tell. But Teufelsburst laughed like the sound of a saw, and said, Follow out the analogy, my Lilith, and you will see that man is like the corn that springs again after it is buried. But unfortunately the only result we know of is a vampire. Volkenlicht looked up, and saw a shudder pass through the frame and over the pale thin face of the painter. This he could not account for, but Teufelsborst could have explained it for there were strange whispers abroad, and they had reached his ear, and his philosophy was not quite enough for them. But the laugh with which Lilith met this frightful attempt at wit grated dreadfully on Volkenlicht's feeling. With her, too, however, a reaction seemed to follow, for, turning round a moment after, and looking at the picture on which her father was working, the tears rose in her eyes, and she said, Oh, father, how like my mother you have made me this time. Child, retorted the painter with a cold fierceness, you have no mother. That which is gone out is gone out. Put no name in my hearing on that which is not. Where no substance is, how can there be a name? Lilith rose and left the room. Volkenlicht now understood that Lilith was a frozen bud, and could not blossom into a rose. But pure love lives by faith. 
it loves the vaguely beheld and unrealized ideal it dares believe that the loved is not all that she ever seemed it is in virtue of this that love loves on and it was in virtue of this that Wolkenlicht loved Lilith yet more after he discovered what a grave of misery her unbelief was digging for her within her own soul. For her sake he would bear anything, bear even with calmness the torments of his own love. He would stay on, hoping and hoping. The text, that we know not what a day may bring forth, is just as true of good things as of evil things and out of time's womb the facts must come but with the birth of this resolution to endure his suffering abated his face grew more calm his love no less earnest was less imperious and he did not look up so often from his work when lilith was present the master could see that his pupil was more at ease and that he was making rapid progress in his art this did not suit his designs, and he would betake himself to his further schemes. For this purpose, he proceeded first to simulate a friendship for Wolkenlicht, the manifestations of which he gradually increased until, after a day or two, he asked him to drink wine with him in the evening. Karl readily agreed. The painter produced some of his best, but took care not to allow Lilith to taste it for he had cunningly prepared and mingled with it a decoction of certain herbs and other ingredients exercising specific actions upon the brain and tending to the inordinate excitement of those portions of it which are principally under the rule of the imagination by the reaction of the brain during the operation of these stimulants the imagination is filled with suggestions and images the nature of these is determined by the prevailing mood of the time they are such as the imagination would produce of itself, but increased in number and intensity. Teufelsborst, without philosophizing about it, called his preparation simply a love-filter, a concoction well known by name, but the composition of which was the secret of only a few. Wolkenlicht had, of course, not the least suspicion of the treatment to which he was subjected. Teufelsborst was, however, doomed to fresh disappointment. Not that his potion failed in the anticipated effect, for now Karl's real sufferings began, but that such was the strength of Karl's will, and his fear of doing anything that might give a pretext for banishing him from the presence of Lilith, that he was able to conceal his feelings far too successfully for the satisfaction of Teufelsborst's art. Yet he had to fetter himself with all the restraints that self-exhortation could load him with, to refrain from falling at the feet of Lilith, and kissing the hem of her garment. For that, as the lowliest part of all that surrounded her, itself kissing the earth, seemed to come nearest within the reach of his ambition, and therefore to draw him the most. No doubt the painter had experience and penetration enough to perceive that he was suffering intensely, but he wanted to see the suffering embodied in outward signs, bringing it within the region over which his pencil held sway. He kept on, therefore, trying one thing after another, and rousing the poor youth to agony, till to his other sufferings were added, at length, those of failing health, 
a fact which noted itself evidently enough even for Teufelsburst, though its signs were not of the sort he chiefly desired. But Karl endured all bravely. Meantime, for various reasons, he scarcely ever left the house. End of section one.